Welcome to episode 352 with my guest, uh, Caitlin Doty, who is a uh, mortician and a best-selling author. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, go there. Check it out. Uh, fill out an anonymous survey. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Um, join the forum. There's lots of like-minded people in the forum. Um, there's all kinds of things you can do on the website. Um there's a, there's a tilt-a-whirl on the website. Don't ask me how. Don't ask me how we got it there. Um, L.A. PodFest was amazing this last weekend. I had so much fun. Um, I There is nothing like that community of people that listen to podcasts. It's unlike any other... Um, you know, doing stand-up for years and being on TV and all that kind of stuff... I would meet people that followed my work, but nothing really compares to people that listen to you when you podcast because there's, um, maybe it's the subject matter, maybe it's the nature of having somebody in your ears that feels so intimate, but um, it's just always, it always feels so good. And uh, speaking of that, I'm going to be in uh, Minneapolis uh tomorrow saturday uh what would that be october 14th at sisyphus brewing uh we're going to be recording the podcast live in the afternoon there and then i'm going to be uh doing my crazy uh satirical political character uh in their comedy room later that night um i am still struggling with shame um it is i have the hardest time forgiving myself for making mistakes or um, doing something that uh, lessens me in other people's eyes or sometimes I don't even know why it is. Sometimes, Sometimes it has nothing to do with me, but somebody doesn't react the way I want them to react. And I immediately go to the meanest voice in my brain and, and believe it. And I was I was thinking about the uh, this the other day, and I don't know why I ruminate. And I think we all do this about something that we regret or feel shame about. There's like this false belief that eventually some truth will reveal itself in hating yourself that will allow you to stop thinking about it. But if there is a truth, it's not going to be found there. It's going to be found by talking about it with safe people, uh, building uh, our self-esteem through unrelated stuff, like connecting to others, being vulnerable, being of service, practicing self-care, um, having a nice balance between work and play. And then the weight of what I'm worrying about will change so I can view it objectively instead of through the fight-or-flight lens that always distorts it. You know, that, that that place of fear and self-involvement and and for me, fear of abandonment, you know, it, it, ruminating on shame or regret or guilt is like losing your keys 
and then you just keep looking in the same empty empty drawer for the ninth time in a row. Well, you know what? Maybe my keys are hidden behind a paper clip. And I just wind up driving myself crazy. But um I don't know. I don't know. Thank God. How's this for a segue? Thank God I have my therapist at BetterHelp.com. I love her. Her name's Donna. She helps me so much. I feel so seen and heard and felt by her. We do an online uh, video session every week, and uh, it helps me a lot. She's she's really helping me see um, uh, how toxic uh, my shaming of myself can can be. And uh, my intolerance for quote-unquote mistakes in in my life. Um, if uh, if you want to try out BetterHelp, I highly recommend it. Go to BetterHelp.com/mental, uh, complete a questionnaire, and you get matched with a BetterHelp.com counselor, and then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, see if it's right for you. Uh, you need to be over 18, and uh, I highly highly recommend it. I want to tell you guys about HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience and not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks who are short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there is no food waste. I have used it and it is fantastic. You don't have to go to the grocery store. You're taking nice time out for yourself. The food's delicious. Uh, you know, it's a chance to slow down and do something nice for yourself. And uh, as you know, listening to the show, it's about being nice to yourself. It's about savoring the moment, and it's a great way to do it. They deliver it right to your doorstep in a recyclable insulated box for free. So, you guys, right now, for 30 bucks off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the offer code MENTAL30 when you subscribe. Once again, for $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter MENTAL30 when you subscribe. Okay, I want to read two quick surveys. This first one is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Zam. Zampano, and he writes, Sometimes when I walk down the hallway or stairs at work, I open my mouth as if to let out a primal scream and contort my face to mimic how fucked up I feel inside. When I just can't contain it, I silently scream with rage or fear or desperation, scared I might emit some sound that my coworkers will hear. I pretend to be nice and put together. Everyone seems to buy it and love the mask I always wear and sometimes forget I am not. I wonder what they think when they round the corner and my face is pure rage for half a second before the mask comes down and I smile and nod as I walk past. Thank you for that. That is, uh, I think so many of us relate to that feeling of just just like trapped and what the fuck how do i get out of this how do i get out of this this is overwhelming thank you for sharing that and then this is an awful moment filled out by uh beetle soup and she writes in fifth grade there was a model bridge building contest in tech class the goal was to make a bridge that could withstand the most weight i was not the best tech student but by some stroke of luck 
I won the count. I won the contest out of all 300 students in my grade. I couldn't wait to show my parents since I never really won anything like this before. When I brought the certificate home to put on the fridge, my mom asked, did everyone get one? I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) That is fantastic. I'm here with Caitlin Doty, uh, who's an author, a mortician. Uh, you may have heard of some of uh, her, well, she has a new book out, but her previous book was Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Uh, you have a very uh, devoted following. I tw- uh, tweeted in Facebook that I was going to be interviewing you and asking people for um, any questions, suggestions, and people were like, oh, I love her. I can't <laughs> wait to listen. Yeah, we call them the deathlings. Do you? Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Your new book is called uh, From Here to Eternity, uh, Travel. Traveling the world to find the good death. Yeah, and it's uh, kind of, uh, how would how would you, I don't want to try to put words in your mouth, but how would you uh, encapsulate the, the goal of the book? Hmm. Uh, the first book was me working at a crematory as a 23-year-old. So it was Girl Encounters Death for First Time. And this time, I'm a bit more of an expert. Expert is a strong word, but I'm a bit more of someone seasoned. Seasoned. That's the right word. I'm a seasoned death, you know, practitioner. And I go around to different countries and places in the United States and try and be a respectful observer of their traditions and then connect it to the U.S.'s very broken funeral industry and see if there can't be some inspiration for how we can do things differently. So, uh, you don't believe America's number one? I do not believe. I believe America's number... How many countries are there? 196, <laughs> 197. We are at the tail end as far as functioning death cultures. Yeah. It's... Uh, that I think that is one of the struggles with that has been left in the wake of American exceptionalism. You know, in many ways, you know, as, as good as the turnout for World War II could have been, what has been left in its wake is this idea that we know everything, we can do anything, and uh, it pervades so many, so many areas of uh, our culture. It does. And the American funeral industry really started in the early 20th century, but it was after World War II when we had all that money when the funeral industry became the fancy casket, flowers, wake, suit, hearses, excess industry that it's come to be defined by. Which makes sense if you realize that at the heart of so many people's existence, money equals love. 
Yeah, and and that's and that's not unique to America. I right. I saw traditions around the world where that's still a part of it. They may do more with the dead body. They may have more intimate rituals. They have may have more elaborate spiritual systems, but they still equate how many buffalo you sacrifice with how much you loved the person. Yeah. Um, would you like to to kick it off by reading an excerpt from? Uh, sure, I'd love to. Your newest. Yeah. So this is, um, speaking of sacrificing buffalo, this is, I've gone to a place in rural Indonesia where they have a very, very unique custom, uh, one the, of the most unique in the world. That's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the next morning began with the sound of a plaintive gong tolling along the road. This announced the official start of the Manene. The first mummy I saw wore 80s-style aviator sunglasses with yellow-tinted frames. Damn, I thought, that guy looks like my middle school algebra teacher. One young man stood the mummy up as another sliced into its navy blazer with a pair of scissors, cutting all the way down to his pants, revealing the torso and legs. Given that this gentleman had been dead eight years, he was remarkably well-preserved, with no obvious gashes or breaks in his flesh. Two coffins down, another fellow hadn't been so lucky. His body was now entirely shriveled, nothing left but thin strips of dried skin over bone, held together by gold-embroidered cloth. Wearing nothing but boxer shorts and the aviators, the mummy was placed on the ground, a pillow beneath his head. An 8 by 10 inch framed portrait photo, taken during his life, sat propped next to his body. Alive, he had looked far less like my math teacher than he did today, (laughs) eight years into mummification. A group of women fell to their knees beside the man and keened, wailing his name and stroking his cheeks. When their wails softened, the man's son moved in with a set of paintbrushes, the kind you'd buy at a local hardware store. The son began to clean the corpse, brushing his father's leathery skin with short, loving strokes. A cockroach scampered out from inside the boxer shorts. The son didn't seem to mind, and carried on brushing. This was morning as you have never seen it before. Thank you for uh, for reading that. And it's a um, good way to start a podcast. It really is. And what's interesting about that chapter too is that even within Indonesia, people kind of have different views on that island and that tribe and that ceremony. Absolutely. And I I'm embarrassed that I didn't know this, but Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world. I was yes. like, oh, the the lovely island chain of Indonesia. No, it's it's like in you know China, India, U.S., yes. Indonesia, and it's like what seven hundred islands or something. Yeah, like some that? some crazy large amount of islands, yes. and that all have really diverse, unique cultures within them. And places like Jakarta and these really urban areas, they look to these mountainous regions as somewhat backward and somewhat mm-hmm. foreign to them, the same way we would look at maybe uh, the churches that do snake charming as, oh, wow, I don't know about that. That's a that's a part of the country I don't know about. Yeah. Um, and, and you go to uh, a variety of different countries. And the book starts off with you uh, in Colorado. Uh, <laughs> exotic de- Colorado. Exotic Colorado uh, describing a kind of renegade funeral pyre. 
that has to navigate all these legal requirements because uh, I'll let you take it from here, but uh, talk about what is legal and not legal uh, regarding uh, death, what you what you do with a body once it's once it's dead. Let's take it from the minute somebody dies legally. What are the constraints? Sure. And the American funeral industry, to start, is a pretty draconian system because each state runs its own unique set of rules that are mostly determined by funeral industry lobby. So they've been able to keep it the same way that it's been for the past 50 to 100 years because nobody really knows how to challenge them on it, except for these consumer groups and now us renegade morticians who want a different system and want more young women and people of color and immigrants to be able to open their own funeral homes. So starting with that premise, the way that it usually works is each state is different, obviously, but someplace like Colorado has the most lenient funeral laws in the country. You actually don't even have to have a license to be a funeral director there, and they're the only state that that is true. So it's this amazing small town in Colorado where if somebody dies, they will, the nonprofit will come to your house. They will set it up so the person is on ice and that they're cleaned and washed and dressed however the family wants. And they set up this beautiful wake for the family. And then everybody has two or three days to come into the town. And at the end of it, as dawn breaks, they carry them up this hill to this beautiful open air pyre, which is the only one like it in the Western world. And they lay the shrouded body and they cover it with pinyon pine logs and they set it alight. And it's just the most gorgeous moving thing you've ever seen. But it would be absolutely illegal in any other state to do it like this. And the only reason they've been able to do it is years and years of fighting with the local government in this rural area to make it happen. One of the things in that chapter, you described the body breaking down as the as the flames uh, devoured it, and um, it it was hard for me to read. And I have a pretty strong uh, ability to take in dark information, mm-hmm. and I was having trouble picturing myself being there. Um, watching that happen to a loved one, even though I know intellectually that's not hurting them. Talk about how people's minds are changed and what it might be that changes their minds about that, because you described one guy who went wasn't sure he was going to go there. It was his mother, and he yeah. changed his mind. Talk about him. Yeah, I think that he was a really excellent story of the transition that happens in something like this. And in a way, Uh, I'm sort of just thinking of this now, but it kind of encapsulates in a very short period of time what most people's journeys are toward death acceptance. And it starts with, first of all, starts with showing up and showing up for death and being willing to be there for the hard stuff. So I do describe what happens to the body in the flame. And it's because it's kind of my thing at this point to do that, but also because I think on balance, it really ends up helping people. I think honesty about death and the death process is always what ends up being most helpful. And even if it's hard, just showing up and being there is what can make the transition happen. In the case of the pyre, you show up and 
So to be clear, you're not watching the flaming skull on the pyre. These people who are the volunteers are highly trained at making sure that everything is very delicately hidden from view. Mm-hmm. So at no point, like a charred arm shoots out and, and raises to the sky or anything right. that might be too gruesome. But you do see, you know, you do see the flames taking the shroud and beginning to beginning to take the body mm-hmm. beneath. And at first, it's this... When they first lit the pyre, there's this almost sacred tension that's in this circular group of people around the pyre. And this smoke is swooping up, and it's this white, thick, beautiful smoke that, in my case, went in, went in small cyclones up into the air. And at a certain point, the silence breaks, and people come up and start talking, and they share the memories. And at first, the memories are very dramatic. And then you get to people who just want to tell a funny story, or they want to sing a song, or they want to read a poem. And then by the end, and this is what they told me would happen, and it did happen, about, you know, 45 minutes in, something just starts to shift. It's almost like, well, we've been hanging out with this pyre for long enough now that we're just at a pyre. It's no longer, oh my God, there's a corpse on that pyre and the fire is eating the corpse. It's like, yeah, we're, we're hanging out around the pyre and we're talking about mom or my sister or my brother or whoever it is. And something just mentally shifts. And I think it has to do with being there. I think it has to do with not being the way that the American funeral industry works is they usher you in and you see this chemically embalmed body that they have taken from you, done this procedure behind the scenes and then sold back to you essentially. And you get your 45 minutes with it and then they take it away and then it's either cremated or it's a burial. But even at the burial, you never get to see the body lowered into the ground. You have to just stand there you see the and then casket. Lowered. You see the casket there, but then you don't see it even lowered into the ground in most cases. So there's no follow through in the American funeral industry at all. You don't. You never get to be there for the actual process. So in this town, you were not only sit with the body in its home for a day or two while they're preparing the cremation, you then go and you're there the whole time that the actual cremation is happening. And at the end, you can see the bones and the and the embers in the bottom of the pyre. And so this whole time, if you're close to this person, you're there, you're present, you're engaged. And almost by the end of it, my sense of of the people who were really close to this woman, whose cremation I saw was that it was a lifting. They're going to keep grieving for her, obviously, but it was a lifting in their fear of the process and a lifting of their the intensity of their mm-hmm. grief. It, it had shifted into something more manageable. Would it be fair to say that part of what enables people to think differently about what they pictured in their mind versus what they experience when they're there is that sense of community and the love and the support of people around them. Because I imagine if you just saw it done by, you were standing there by yourself, it might be a different experience. I think so. I, I do agree with that. And what I often say to people is, when I advocate for something else that's pretty difficult for people to imagine, which is just having a home funeral and have, keeping the dead body in the home, is if I put you, so we're in a 
in a small room right now or a recording room right now. If I put you in here and lock the door with some random corpse, yeah, that's the start of a horror movie. Yeah. But if I put you in this room with your mother, your father, your wife, your partner, your sister, your child, whoever it is in your life that's deeply close and meaningful to you, that's a completely different situation. And all of a sudden, it's not this horror. It's like, this was my person. I want to be here. I want to take care of them. And it's just a different situation. We're not talking about random corpses. We're not talking about random yeah. death. We're talking about someone that you were connected to and that's meaningful to you. So I think in this case, the principle is kind of the same. You're here. This is someone who meant something to you. And you have all of these people, the volunteers for this nonprofit are all so comfortable with it. And the, it's so clear what an honor it is for them to be doing it, but in an unobtrusive way. They're not, yeah. they're not religious. They're not pushing a religion. They're not pushing a ideology. They're just there to do this very simple but beautiful work. Mm -hmm. And the community at this point is used to these cremations. You know, it's what you do in this community when someone dies. So they don't go like, oh, you're going to do what? And if you show up and everyone else around you is like, you're going to love it. It's going to be beautiful. It changes the tenor of it for you. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. So many questions to, to, <laughs> to ask you. Um, well, this one's obvious. Have her views towards death, death changed from the beginning of her career and now? Uh, let's talk about the maybe the arc of 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 that. But before we get there, let's actually start and talk a little bit about your your childhood. Sure. And um, give give me some broad strokes of what events uh, experiences that you feel like have kind of maybe informed who you are, the emotional temperature of where you were raised, um, yeah. where you experienced life's. Sure. Um, I grew up in Hawaii. I was born and raised in Hawaii. and um, Which island? Oahu. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was raised in a town called Kaneohe. And is that southwest? That is east. It is oh, okay. east. It's a bay. Um, it's right between Kailua and Kahalu'u. It's about, I went to school downtown in Honolulu. It's it's a small island, though. Like yeah. you don't have to you don't have to go very far. But I was born there, and I left when I was 18 to go to college. And one of the things that it informed, especially when you're talking about traveling around the world to do death, is that when you grow up in Hawaii, you grow up mortified at being thought of as a tourist of any sort or of being buffoonish. And especially when you're a white person in Hawaii, you are the minority and not in the sense that like being a minority, you know, plays out in the continental United States or the yes. mainland, as we would call it. But you are a minority and you have to, the, the automatic privileges usually afforded to a random white girl um, are not as much. And that's a fantastic thing. And I think that has really helped me in my career and the way that I look at other cultures and the way that I go to other cultures. And uh, in growing up, there's not a whole lot of death in, in Hawaii. It's generally, I mean, people die as they do normally, but it's generally a pretty beautiful, liberal place. And growing up, my, my sort of er story or origin story with death has always been when I was about eight or nine years old, I was at my local shopping mall and I saw a small child fall off the balcony and hit the ground in what I presume was their 
death. I don't have the death certificate, but it was pretty gruesome and pretty intense. And it very, very deeply affected me. And my parents were, they they were generally like pretty, I know that in your show, you deal with a lot of people who are like, and then my parents did awful things. And my parents were fantastic. But, you know, my dad was in Vietnam. He was in the shit like Forrest Gump style in Vietnam. Mm. And when he came back, I think my mother has always just said, well, and then he and he got over it. And my, it was always yeah. like, did he though, really? Yeah. Um, but I do know that when this really awful thing happened, they were not, it's not that they shut me out, but I think just instinctually as a child, I hid, I knew that it wouldn't be okay to, to really have all of these open emotions about death around them. So I think in the way that kids can do, I subsumed those fears and made it my secret how deeply terrified I was of death. And did you see this event happen? Yes. Yeah. So I was, what happened was I was, um, it's sort of a big central atrium mm -hmm. courtyard, I guess, in this mall, um, two stories, but you know, two very, very tall stories. Yeah. And I was talking, I was on the second story across from where the, the child fell. And I was looking down yelling at someone below, I think about a pretzel or something is my mm -hmm. recollection of this and trying to get money for a pretzel or some, mm -hmm. you know, thing a child would want. And I just heard this, like, I don't want to do it on your table, but just this like thump, this sickening, sickening thump. And the mother of this child just screamed and it took over the whole the whole oh my god that's making room. me sick to my stomach it was it was it was like it was the it was the trauma of my life basically um and because it was it was almost like a scene from a movie because every part of it was so visceral and it was almost like a like a um a jellyfish moving the crowd just like swooped in of their own volition to surround this child and i remember the person i was talking to i think it was my father the person i was talking to i looked back down and that person was gone and so all of a sudden I was alone, completely alone. And I had seen this thing and my friends were at the mall with me, but they were not with me because they had not gone to get the pretzel money. So they were at the other side of the mall. So I didn't have anyone else who had also experienced this with me. And, you know, and, and in retrospect, if I saw that today, I don't know how I'd react, but I know that for whatever reason, the place that I was in, in my awakening or in my mental capacity, maybe if I was a little younger, it would have been less dark. Or if I was a little older, it would have been less dark. Um, or if I had been farther away, it would have been less dark. I don't, I don't know. I can't tell you. Mm -hmm. I just know that for me, it, it turned into a thing. How do you... What do you remember in the days, weeks, months, years after that? I remember, especially in the following few years, that I I developed what I would say now is OCD behaviors. I was deeply into controlling my life because mm -hmm. it was this general sense of if I can do all these rituals, then I can stave off death. 
I was, every time I heard a siren, it was like, my mom's dead. My dad's dead. My grandparents are dead. My dog is dead. I don't know why the ambulance would be coming for my dog, but that was, that was part it of the It was an important dog. It was an important dog. Yeah. yeah. It carried and, a lot of weight. Yeah. It carried, it carried the, a lot of weight. And also like it was, it was my responsibility to keep all these yes, people alive yes. with my mind and my rituals. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I would have to do it. And doing that, I remember one particularly gross thing I did is I would pull up my t-shirt and just spit into my t-shirt. And I don't, I couldn't really tell you like something about, it was just, it was just a ritual that I had to Mm -hmm. do. I couldn't keep the spit in my mouth. Um, All the normal, like turning lights on and off, Mm -hmm. tapping on my fingers, etc. And I also just, whenever, and this sort of carries over to this day, that whenever somebody, you know, my parent, I'm waiting at home for my parents and they're not home yet. I'm like, well, she's clearly died in this brutal way. You know, or if my boyfriend doesn't text me back, you know, it's not even like, oh, he's ignoring me. It's a power play. It's like, well, he's dead. You know, and yeah. it has to, as much as like as much therapy as I've had, it still kind of continues to this day. And I in talking, I don't know that I've ever, you know, normally it's like, tell us your five second death story. Um, so I don't normally lay it all out like yeah. that. But just from people who have heard parts of it or read parts of it. I think that this, the crippling rituals and fear that come with a childhood fear of death is certainly not unique to me. Yeah. Uh, I was sharing with Caitlin on our our way uh, towards the studio, Um, and I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but in second grade, there was a girl who sat uh, in front of me, and she would lean her head back, and her hair would uh, cover uh, my pencils on the pencil holder, and it drove me crazy, and I complained to the teacher, and the teacher told me I was a baby and stopped complaining, and I got mad at this girl, and I remember standing behind her in line, waiting to get on the bus, and saying, I wish you were dead, and then, like, days later... She died in a car accident, and I was convinced for years that I had killed her. And just the mention of her name would send chills through my body. I would feel nauseous. My face would be hot. And it probably wasn't until I was in my 20s that I could hear her name. I, it's hard to even say her name uh, today, but it 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 would... It was, it was a visceral, emotional uh, reaction, and I'll never forget... Her funeral, it would have been in 1970, uh, let's see, I was six years old, seven, I was probably seven or eight years old, so 70, 71, and it was in our church, and it was a tiny little casket, and they played the bird song to everything, turn, 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 which is a melancholy song to begin with, and every time I hear that song, I love it and I hate it. It brings up such, such an intense, um, feeling in me do you think i'm getting chills at that story do you do you think um it's it's uh magnified by our youth when we experience something i do i think it's it's magnified by the magical thinking of youth because isn't it a sign of of beautiful immaturity that we believe we have so much power to influence the universe the fact that you thought that you could say I wish you were dead and you actually manifested the death of this girl. And I thought that I could, you know, tap my fingers or spit in my shirt and my mother would live. Yeah. You know, what a, what a feeling of it's, it's self-centered, but in a beautiful childlike yeah. way. Yeah. It's still the impulse we have as adults. It's just, <laughs> it is. it's just less hidden. Yeah. 
Um, or we like, yeah, I guess we like integrate it slightly better into slightly, our lives. Yeah. Uh, through the... Uh, or just don't talk about it. Right. Uh, passive aggression. That's mm-hmm. a nice way to, to camouflage it. Um, did you ever go back to that mall? Yeah. I mean, it was my, it was a block from my house. It was my local mall. So I absolutely do go. I don't think I ever go without thinking about it. You know, I've been going to that mall for uh, my entire life and it's still there. And every time I go back now to just go get dinner with my parents, I always pass. It was right by the escalator, the main escalator in the mall. And I always pass by it and I'm like, yep, that's the site of my ur trauma in my existence. You know, mm-hmm. never quite. Um, and when you say ur, you mean you, meaning you like, are? You are, yes. Yeah. Yeah, or like central, you know, start of the narrative, yeah. beginning of all things. Um, and uh, yeah, so you never, um, just like the name never stops affecting you, like that yeah. area of the mall will never stop affecting me, I think. Yeah. I think people have the same reaction, but it's because of the food court. <laughs> um speaking of traumas yeah how ideally would your parents have supported you and this is not to throw them uh under yeah, the bus. No. i'm not sure any parent would know how to how to react in in that situation but now looking back with the gift of hindsight how could they have supported you and what would you have liked instead of going silent how what would you have liked to have been able to say yeah that's a that's a really good question and i think that a lot of the work i do now is i guess somewhat for the kids but more for the parents of kids like that to be like hey let's make you really comfortable with the discussion around death so your child doesn't feel like it's a non-starter and that's kind of a subtle wishy-washy answer, but I think it's about adults in our culture not pasting their fear onto their kids or or making kids feel morbid or making kids feel damaged for being interested or obsessed with death. Mm-hmm. And I think again without without coming at my parents because I've had, you know, I've had all sorts of issues in my life, but my parents are really not that, you know, they're, yeah. they're really great people. So without coming at them, I will say that I think if your child witnesses a trauma, assume that it was a trauma, Yeah, you know, and if they tell you, you know, mom, you need to stop asking me about this. I am really, I have integrated this into my selfhood. You know, they won't yeah. say that, <laughs> but they say something about like, mom, leave it alone. Like, I promise I'll tell you if something goes yeah. up, you know, at that point you can leave them alone or drop yeah. it. But before that happens, assume that they're thinking about it a lot. If they develop any sort of strange behaviors, Assume that it's a sign of some sort of lack of control or some sort of deeply unresolved issue in their lives. Um, my aunt recently told me, you know, what did what did your elementary school say when you were spitting in your shirt all day and doing these things? And I was like, oh, they didn't do anything at all. They probably maybe mentioned it to my parents, but I don't think that they did anything beyond that, you know, why, where were, you know, why weren't people saying, I think it was sort of a, and of course this was an earlier era. I'm not a spring chicken. So it was kind of a kids will be kids thing. But when somebody is developing those behaviors as a child, it's probably not a kid being a kid. And did I grow out of it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, within a year or two I did, but 
the stuff stayed with me and I certainly wouldn't say it was resolved. So just, you know, really make sure that no matter what trauma it was, just make the conversation really safe yeah for a kid and and hear whatever they have to say it's Listen. not about you yes and the other thing i, I would uh, imagine would be good would be resist the temptation to uh uh sit through your discomfort of your child having painful emotions yes. while they're processing yes. it to say oh it's okay it's going to be okay don't cry let them cry let yeah. them cry as long as they need to yeah. let them you know um if they have a year of having night terrors or or whatever, um, don't try to fix them. Yeah, just try to be there and let and, and your child witness. have painful emotions. Is such a we should put that on bumper stickers. Yeah, really, because and, they're going to have them. It's just yeah. whether or not they're going to come out in a way that's healthy. And it's kind of the same thing for adults and death too. Yeah. If someone dies, let them have painful emotions. Let them let them exist in a very dark space if they want to. And our our almost pathological desire to fix it, mm -hmm. to say, don't cry, don't don't feel this way, is all you're saying to them is you're making me uncomfortable. Yeah. Your reality your doesn't exist. Your reality hurts my reality. Your yeah. reality pokes a pin in my reality, right. and that's scary for me. And one of the things that it's been so interesting for me to realize is what I can offer people when they experience a death isn't my advice, isn't my wisdom, isn't my intricate knowledge of the funeral industry. It's just listening to them as if they were normal. That's all it is. All it is is me being like, yeah, your dad died in a tragic way. That does fucking suck. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man, you must be feeling like such shit. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, cry. You know, just that sort of yeah. basic normalization of whatever comes out of their mouth and accepting it at face value and just being like, yeah, man, ugh, yeah. ugh, what do I even say? Yikes. You know, yeah. that is helpful. It, 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 I have a, a friend who has since recovered, but he was uh, diagnosed with cancer. And he, I asked him, I said, you know, how were you doing? And um, he said, I'm scared. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I said, you must be. It, it, I can't imagine how overwhelming this must feel. And, and I said, what are people saying to you that is the wrong thing? And he said, uh, you know, them trying to put a spin out. You're going to be okay. They don't know that. Yeah. You know? He, oh, I'm he, sorry. You're my oncologist? Yeah. He said, it's okay to say, are you scared? You must be scared. I would be scared. Yeah. Um, and I think it really kind of all comes down to that same thing of of um, wanting to avoid uncomfortable emotions because mm -hmm. we don't have the script. Mm-hmm. We think that we need to change it. Yeah. And you can say you're, you're, if you feel like you don't have the script, your opening line can be, God, I have to tell you that I'm terrified I'm going to flub this. I'm terrified I'm going to say the wrong thing because all I want to do is support you. And mm -hmm. all I want to do is say the right thing. But probably it's just, I have to let that go because what ultimately what I want to do is make you feel comfortable. Yeah. You know, it's okay to acknowledge that it's awkward yeah. or that you think you're going to not do well, but you know, ultimately that's so much better to do that than to try and put on some performance some where spin. you, some spin where you try and indicate, you know, a global plan for this person or a religious plan yeah. 
yeah. or a, in the grand scheme of things, it will be better because of this plan because they're not interested. Yeah, they're not. Um, and is there anything that you think you would like to have said when you were that girl? Mm, like to my parents or yeah, just... or to anybody? Oh, man. Um, I think uh, probably if I had... And, you know, honestly, thinking about it now, I don't know that my parents would have turned me away. You know, they probably... They're such good people. They probably would have listened to me or engaged with me, but I was too scared to to say it. And obviously, it's not an eight-year-old's responsibility to yeah. <laughs> to be perfectly fine with stating her emotions. But um, I mean, I probably I would have said something like, "I am fucking terrified all the time. I lay up at night, and it's scary. Why don't we? Why don't we develop something where somebody sits with me at night, or?" I get to stay up and leave some lights on. I used to get up and turn all the lights on in the house and like uh, Jay Leno or like early Jay Leno. Um, and you'd be like in interviewing someone from, you know, some sitcom. And I'd be like, well, there are people alive and talking, so nothing can get at me. You know, so set it up where I can I can have that. Um, I don't know. This is not a good answer because I can think of about a million things that I would have would have wanted to say. Um, but just... You know, I, I think it would have helped me, though, to really talk. Say as many about as you, as you, as you would it, like to. I think it would have really helped me to, to do some of the stuff that I do now in the sense of like talking about what death actually means, what actually happens to the body, what actually happens to um, in the process, where a body goes, what a family goes through. Um, and that's heavy. But I think my little mind, you know, because I was always like a fairly creative child, my imagination just went to places that were so morbid and so intense that I think a little truth probably would have helped. Yeah, because that kid's mind is going to go to a heavy place. So yeah. better to have it to the heavy place with truth than the heavy place with spitting in the shirt. Exactly. Yeah, heavy pace with, uh, you know, the corpses, the corpse of my dog rotting tied up on the fence because, you know, I didn't check on her before I went to bed. Wow. Wow. You know, I'm I'm reminded too, you know, going back to what we were talking about with the um, embracing the, the idea of death and the ceremony of death, you know, when somebody passes. Uh, there's a great uh, book by uh, Carl Marlante, he's a Vietnam vet, called uh, What It's Like to Go to War. And he talks about the lack of ceremony. You know, we have these ceremonies where we train people to become warriors and go out there and fight, but we don't have a ceremony for when they come home to help them deal with their feelings and to decompress. And he talked about how lonely he felt when he came home and how much he wanted the comfort of a woman to just hold him, not in a sexual way, but uh, I would imagine because, you know, the innate uh, softness that so many women possess in a way that some men um, might not be able to, or that that was just what he was craving. But, um, you know, as I pictured that, I thought, yeah, that that person has been through the most difficult, you know, we hug somebody after they get a divorce or they, you know, are done having mono mm -hmm. and yet we don't do that. Yeah. We don't have Especially a Especially after Vietnam, you know, when everyone was just like, you're a baby killer and you're a horrible person. And my dad, you know, he didn't believe in the war at all. He was a pr pretty liberal guy, but he was also a small town boy from Iowa who had 
several older brothers who, you know, had deferments, academic deferments, and they were like, oh, you're a young college graduate with who's an athlete from a small town in Iowa whose brothers have gotten out of it? Oh, sign you up. And he was like, well, I'll go. He was supposed to be a military police officer in Saigon, and they changed his his uh, his title to infantry as they were flying him over there and just set him down, like, in the middle of a rice field. Wow. And we're like, fight for the next two years. And what years was he there? Oh, shit. Um... I want to say, hold on. So he, I want to say like 68 to 70. So he was in the middle yeah. of the escalation. He was in the middle that. of it. And he doesn't, he doesn't really talk about it. He'll tell fun stories from Vietnam. Like there's and a story. And there's so many. Yeah, I know. There's hilarious. <laughs> no, there's not many. There's like two. And one of them is like, and, you know, there were supposed to be tigers outside this particular camp. And one night he woke up and there was this snuffling and like little roar right by his bed. And he's reaching for his gun slowly and the lights turn on and it's the camp dog. You know, that's like <laughs> the one Vietnam story I have for my dad. And it's like, you were there for two years, like yeah. perhaps seeing terrible things. And everyone he went to high school with, you know, all of these people at college, like all of these people that he knew died. Like I can't imagine having all of these men that I went to college with just dead. Yeah. You know, I have, I, I, I've probably had maybe two or three friends die by suicide, but that's different than just them all going to war and being wiped out. You know, so there are just so many emotions there. And you come home and people think that you've committed atrocities. You know, so my dad, my dad doesn't, you know, to this day when people are like, stand up, let's thank you for your service. He's like, oh, no, thank you. I've never met a serviceman that was comfortable with somebody calling them a hero. Yeah. Never. Ugh, my, my dad would just... Uh, yeah. crawl into a hole and, and die if yeah. someone made him do that. Uh, I've been watching the Ken Burns uh, documentary on Vietnam, and it's so heartbreaking for many reasons, but one in particular, because this speaks to how one person's ego or a group of people's ego can have such ripple effects, and it's audio of Kennedy in 62 or 63 saying we really should pull because it was just advisors over there mm -hmm. at that at that point and he said we really should pull all of our advisors out there but because i can see the writing on the wall that this is unwinnable but it's an election year coming up so it must have been 63 mm -hmm. and I thought, my God, this guy's desire to be reelected. Look at how many people. I mean, maybe somebody would have gotten us back in there. Um, and then you hear audio of uh, President Johnson saying, we can't afford a humiliation. Mm -hmm. And it has to come from that ripple of the idea we had created of ourselves Mm -hmm. at yeah, the World, after World War, War II, II. Absolutely. We have to do everything perfectly, and mm -hmm. I don't want to pop that yeah. bubble. We're America. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 really, really awful. And when I think about what a sensitive and artistic man my father is, you know, he came back and he was a, a high school teacher for, you know, another long period of time until he retired. And but he's always been an artist. He's always been a sculptor. He's always been a woodworker. And he's such a sensitive, sweet guy. And the fact that you would take someone like that and send them to kill is just horrifying to me. 
and it will never stop being horrifying. Let's get to some questions. <laughs> yeah, now back to your life as a mortician. Are you ever overwhelmed with sorrow being a mortician? Sure. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I try to. And how um, do you deal with it when it comes up? Spit in your shirt. I don't spit in my shirt. Yeah. Go to, go to fall the back on Fall back on old habits. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think my moments of being really overwhelmed with sorrow on the job were really from my first year on the job. Can you share some of those? Sure. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, there's a story. And in, this was working in the crematorium? This was working in the crematorium. Yeah. And did you seek that job out? I did. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, I did. I did not fall into it. I, um, wanted to, I, I had studied death in an academic way and I decided that I wanted to see how it actually looked like on the inside and what actual dead bodies look like and how this system actually ran. And I don't know that I had quite that sophisticated an understanding mm -hmm. of it at 22. But there was something drawing But there was something there. powerful. Would you call it a, pa a passion? I curiosity? Would say, I would say that it started as a curiosity. And then when I got, it's hard to explain this to people without sounding a little woo-woo. But as soon as I got into it, as soon as I started the job, it was like, oh, I'll be doing this until the day I die. You know, this and figuring this out and figuring this industry out and reforming this industry, this will be my lifetime job. Wow. And what a I was twenty three I know, it's God, it's incredible. I I I am as much as it's hard, it's a hard road to hoe. Um I knowing how much many of my peers are still really trying to find a meaning structure, especially since we graduated in the middle of the recession. We were spat out into the recession basically. And so many are still trying to find something that's really meaningful to them. The fact that at age 23, I was given this deeply profound life project that I've been doing every day since is like just the greatest thing. And I will never, you know, say that that isn't a privilege on balance because it absolutely is. Do you feel that that was just luck or, th or that there is some force in the universe that's hard for me because <laughs> in general, I am pretty aggressively secular, but I have all of these strains like from my grandmother who everything happens for a reason is a thing she really believed. And I think it's kind of helpful for me to think that things are happening somehow for a reason, mm -hmm. not because of a deity in my case, but just, you know, the fact that I studied death for so long, the fact that I actually got to practice death and get hands-on and combine that theory and practice. The fact that I did theater in high school and college so I can be a public communicator. The fact that my dad was a teacher. The fact that my mom is an amazing public speaker. The fact that I um, am a white lady who, if I wanted to give up a year of my life to eat toast to put myself through mortuary school and be able to afford to do this, I could because I don't have kids. I don't have elderly parents who are dependent on me. Um, all of the things that I was able to do came together in a really positive way to allow me to do this work. Uh, I should mention, by the way, that Caitlin is wearing a T-shirt that says Future Corpse, which <laughs> yes. is so awesome. Yeah, this is my, uh, this is my casual, casual <laughs> afternoon outfit, um, which you all will be someday. Uh, but you asked me about, um, I sort of tangented off the original question, which was emotional, getting in your yes. emotions around a dead body. And in that first year, you know, when I first got in there, it was like, 
corpses were magical creatures to me because I had never, I had seen a couple of them sort of as a child, but never really been around dead bodies, especially in quantity, because this was a, a high volume crematory. And so being around them every day. So you would get them when the funeral was done with them. Yes. Yeah. Well, right. it was a, you know, sorry, mm-hmm. I, I kicked him under the table. Mm-hmm. Um, was it you? <laughs> was it? Uh, was speaking of corpses, <laughs> speaking of powerful forces beyond our knowledge. Um, that was me. Um, but there was really this period where everything was just astonishing and new to me. And so I would do, I would sometimes, I would meet with the families as well. Sometimes I would, uh, do simple things to prepare the body and have them view it. Sometimes they would come in for the cremation, but mostly I was just performing the cremations. And sometimes the body had had a funeral, but a lot of times it was just what's called a direct cremation, where Mm -hmm. the body just came straight to the refrigerator, came out of the refrigerator, and was cremated. You don't need to let it uh, come to room temperature for best results? No, you know, the 1800 degree blast furnace that is a cremation (laughs) machine just takes her. People are always like, uh, you know, there's this meme about popcorn kernels. In like, what if I put popcorn kernels in his pocket? You know, it's like, yeah. well, it, the it's it would be two thousand degrees. Right. Like, yeah. we're it's not like a gentle pop. We're moving right through that. Right. Um, so on slow days, you can't put a pizza in there. No. Well, I mean, a, a pizza you take it out in about two minutes, maybe, yeah. or I don't know, ten seconds. Pizza ovens are really hot. I used to work How at, hot a, are at pizza a place. Um, uh, I worked at a place where they were in the mid to upper five hundreds. Mm. Which is, of course, a lot different than 1,800 degrees. Well, you but could still. go, you know, I think that the uh, Funeral Directors Association would not be happy with me sharing this information. But, you know, there's a heat up process of the machine. So, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of looks like a brick oven pizza. It's kind of mm. similar technology. Let's I look think. into this. Yeah, it's, it's a business. Yeah. You know, we, uh, the double oven. So, uh, Go go ahead. I oh, I like yes. to derail with the jokes that aren't <laughs> worth derailing. No, I, I that, that's actually a thing I'm going to look into about um uh, about the pizza oven. Um, people often ask me like, does do cremation smell like food? And my only answer is that at the early part of cremation, sometimes it smells like eggs to me. But a lot of people don't share that opinion. But yeah. Maybe that's just my perception of eggs, um, which is less offensive than a lot of things I could think it smells like. But um, yes, so (laughs) feelings around dead bodies. Yeah, I would often find myself, you know, there was one particular story where a woman had died and I went and dropped off her ashes to her partner, her husband, and he was in a wheelchair and he looked like he should have died before her, but he didn't. And I gave him her ashes, and he just sat there holding the ashes, looking like the saddest character you've ever seen. And then a week later, he shows up in the crematory. What? And he's died. And in the little bag that came with him, there were, one, pictures of them as a couple when they were young and happy, and they were just so beautiful and cool. And second, the little metal tag that had been her identifier in her ashes that I gave him. So he clearly had removed it from the ashes and maybe held it in his hand or seen that it was really her. And so now it was going into the flames with him. 
And the fact that I had been the one there for both of them, I just lost it. And there were several children that did that to me the first year. And I'm not saying that I don't still feel those things now, but I think I feel them with much less intensity just because I I can't really afford to <laughs> feel the same level of intensity as I did when I was 23. And my sole job was just to be there and show up and be with these people. Um, but I'm really glad that I, I had all those moments because I don't think that I would be as comfortable with death and grieving now if I hadn't had all those moments to really break down and engage with, with how sad death really is. Do you feel like it also gives you a greater appreciation of life? I do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes I worry that I have a small fear that I'm so dedicated to this <laughs> death revolution and to my work and to being a workaholic that I don't smell as many roses as I'm trying to get people to smell. You know, I'm trying, I'm like, you must accept death so you can have this amazing life. I don't have an amazing life because I'm working all the time. But I think that you, <laughs> if you take this in really well, but I will say something that really, it doesn't necessarily like make everything amazing. Although in the beginning, it really, the colors are so much brighter, etc. Mm. But I will say that overall, not being terrified of death and when someone dies, feeling great sorrow, but not making it all about you and your own fears is great. It's really accepting that death is a reality and doing some work in advance, if you can, really does help. And it's a really good thing, no matter who you are. Do you feel or see a greater interconnectedness between all of humanity now that you have experienced so many things? Uh, does that make sense what I'm yeah, asking? Yeah, yeah, definitely I do. And I also, I think even more profound for me, I see more of a connectedness between all of nature. Because when you see how a human body decays, you just look at it and you're like, that looks like earth. That looks like mulch. That looks like compost. That looks like mold. That looks like a dead deer. That's, they're decomposing in the same way. That looks like roadkill. You know, you have all of these examples mm. of humans being just as fallible as any other animal and any other creature on earth. And it makes decay and decomposition rather than being scary seem like such a natural end to our lives and to our, our physical selves. And yes, I do see more connections between humanity, but I think that has been the sort of larger project of acceptance for me and the larger surprising beauty for me. I do very much believe that when we die, that our brains shut down and that our personality and our selfhood and our spirit goes with it. It goes mm -hmm. with that brain. I do not believe that there is any continuation of that. But at the same time, the reason that I'm so attached to just being naturally buried or allowed to decompose in the ground, even though I know logically that I won't be there, is that there's something so powerful to me about my body and all of my atoms being able to decay into the earth, to have other animals eat me, to have other microbes and bacteria eat me, and to go back into this earth that I arose from somehow and to connect back with the universe and 
you can look at that as science, so you can look at that as Gaia, you can look at that as being part of the larger Earth, you can look at that from a physics perspective. There's all different ways to look at it, um, and all of them I end up finding for me, I guess you could say that that is my spirituality, and I and I find it really profound, and it makes me less afraid to die. So mm-hmm. when I talk to people, I say, "Listen, figure out what that is for you." I mean, it wasn't an easy; it didn't just automatically come to me that that's yeah. what it is. It's a process, but when you can get to that place, when you're like, you know what, dying is kind of is kind of cool because what the thought of what's going to happen to me brings me this strange comfort and it's not like i have a death wish and i'm mm-hmm. longing for it um that's not to say some people aren't but as long as you can find that for yourself it makes death a lot easier so it it, it sounds like you find great comfort in truth and authenticity i do yeah especially around death which is the which is the great truth of yeah, our existence. It really is. That's a that's your next T-shirt. <laughs> Death, the great truth. The great truth. Um, but will it sell as well as future corpse? <laughs> we'll see. I'll send you the numbers. Uh, oh, this is such a great question. Did anyone raise up? <laughs> um, why is the time between death and burial so dramatically different in different uh, countries? Hmm, that's a great question. Yeah. Wow. Um, good for you person of the internet um it's really well okay so there are two ways that you could answer this question one is logistical and that is for example in japan in tokyo there aren't enough crematories so the body has to hang out for a week two weeks three weeks until a cremation machine comes available. And that's why they have places like the incredibly cool Corpse Hotel where a family can come and just stay in. Oh yeah. And just come and stay in a room with the dead body at any time to hang out with mom and make sure she's still, you know, chill and still dead and still being taken care of and the incense is lit. And, that's a logistical issue. Um, in other places, the ground is frozen solid in the north, so you have to keep the body for a certain amount of time. And sometimes in cultures like that, rituals around the length of time of death evolve because of these structural issues. You know, in um, in uh, Muslim tradition, you're supposed to bury the dead very, very quickly. And there's some speculation that that comes from the very hot climates. And hygiene. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and yeah. hot climates and the quick decay of the body. So it's like, let's move this along, and then it gets codified in a religious belief as well. Yeah. Um, Fred's getting ripe. Let's yeah, get Fred's a move getting on. ripe. Yeah, let's, and then it you know becomes a thing. And, and the same thing with things in the Bible about you know shellfish or whatever. Like, was it originally just a logistical issue that got codified into something else? Um, so that's one answer. And then the other answer is that. Uh, it's a spiritual thing for a lot of places. So, for example, in, in Indonesia, like we were talking about at the mm-hmm. beginning, they see death, as my my friend Paul Kudinaris calls it, as a soft border. We might think of death as a hard border. It's done. It's over. Ixnay on the person nay, cremate them, shoot them out to sea. Whatever you need to do, it's done. Whereas in some countries, it's this very long, ongoing process where you keep the body in the home, 
for a while because you have to keep feeding the dead person and you have to keep, they're still alive, basically. They just have this illness and you have to keep feeding them, bringing them food. You have to get them Where dressed. Where does the food go? The food, go, I mean, the food is, it's metaphorical. It's, it doesn't, I was it doesn't say, go anywhere. At some anywhere. point, isn't yeah. it obvious they're full? Yeah, I think, but it's not, but that, that um, I think for them is, is fine. They can reconcile yeah. that pretty okay. easily. Um, you know, kind of like a Santa Claus type deal, yes. you know, it's like, well, you know, he didn't necessarily eat them, but, you know, he yeah. saw them and appreciated them. Of course he's not eating a lot. He doesn't look good. Yeah, and he has, he has too, yeah, he doesn't, yeah, he's sick. He can't eat too much right now. Um, but they work that out in their, in their culture. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's a certain amount of time that, that religiously they believe they're still in conversation with, with this person and in dialogue. Um, so there's a lot of different answers to that, but that, that's a great question. It's a good question. A lot of, kind of, a, a lot of really good questions from people on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, in grieving, in dealing with grieving relatives, how do you, where do you draw the line between genuine empathy and professional boundaries? Uh, meaning my own relatives, or oh no, no, uh, probably no, not. Yeah, uh, I, I think oh, oh, no customers. Oh, I see customers. Yeah. yeah. Um, so where do I draw the line between? Yeah, is there ever a a, a time? when you have to separate mm, mm, yeah. Caitlin, the person from yes. Caitlin, the uh, yeah. funeral person. Yeah, absolutely. And this has actually been a really interesting... So I have a uh, partner who essentially run, does the yeoman's work at the funeral home while I travel the world and write mm. books and do talks and do stuff. Um, she's really the one who day-to-day -day is always there at the funeral home. And she's a wonderful funeral director, but I think in the beginning she really struggled with that. And because she's a really empathetic person, so she would give families her personal cell phone number and say, text day or night, whatever you need. And I think for a lot of us, that's something that we have to learn to balance because someone's grieving, we're the, we're the competent source of, of honesty and transparency and, and logistical help in this very difficult time. And we don't want them to have any period where they feel adrift and at sea. We want to be there for them at any second. But if it's your anniversary dinner with your boyfriend and a family calls you right in the middle of it, just because they're not quite sure what mom is feeling in the refrigerator before the cremation takes place, you know, this didn't, this exact scenario didn't happen, but right. scenarios like it yeah. did happen. And, you know, she's really, that's been her journey to figure that out. And I think that I've been in the funeral industry for almost 10 years now, and I do still struggle with it. I think what has become also an issue for me is just this low grade feeling of guilt that I can't answer all of the messages I get and all the emails I get and all the direct messages I get and cards that I get. And um, because people message me with these very profound, beautiful stories and like secrets and dark fears and any number of, of things that I know that they're not sharing with another person. But if I actually sat there and answered each one one by one. I'm sure you have this too. I do. That if you actually answer each one, not only would that be a full-time job, but it would be a full-time job that really wouldn't allow you to do the other work that you do. I would have nothing. I, I would be drained. My battery yeah. would be drained. Yeah. And, and if you have any sort of emotional or, or em empathetic, or empathetic uh, antenna to begin mm -hmm. with, 
you will just get zapped like that. And you have to think, it's not even for me, one-on-one, I find working with an individual family really invigorating or having an individual conversation with someone about death really invigorating. But with with the mass communication, I have to think about, okay, what is going to allow me to continue doing the most for the most amount of people? And if that's putting effort into a video about the funeral industry or doing a talk um, or writing a book, I have to prioritize that rather than the one-on-one messages. And that's really hard for me. I me feel too. like a look. Yeah, I think you're someone who would understand this exact I, scenario, it, especially it, when you're talking about something that's so difficult that people are like, oh, thank God I finally found someone. Who's, who's safe and understands. Who's safe, who understands, who sees this. And you're when you read the message, you're like, if you even are able to read all the messages, you're like, yes, I am this person. I have the perfect answer for you. But if I sit down to write it all out, that will be my night. Yeah. And I can't do the writing I need to do. I can't record the podcast. I can't record the video. And it's this like subtle heartbreak every time. And like, wah, wah, you have a lot of people who think you're great and need your advice. I get that that sounds like a sort of privileged thing, but it really does. It does affect you and it makes you feel bad. And you just have to think about what's best for you and the overall project. I've, I've gotten to a place, I think, with the help of support groups and therapy um, where I, I'm clear and that I am not put here to save people. I'm not here mm-hmm. to be, um, you know, somebody's Sherpa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just here to be a cheerleader for people to go get professional help right. and try to help them feel less alone yeah. in their, um, in their struggles. And if you could put out the clarion call every, every week with what you do, that clarion call, you're going to catch more flies that yeah. way and get people to seek help. Um, and if they if they contact you and they want to talk about it, that's a good sign. Yeah, that's a good I'm sign. Flattered. Hope, I'm flattered. Yeah, it's a good flattered. sign, and hopefully they'll they'll go um, to a friend or to a professional or someone who can really genuinely help them yeah. on that level. Any advice for those who are pre-grieving or preparing for their own death or the death of a loved one? It's an interesting question. Um, That's a great position to be in. It may not feel like that, but think about how (laughs) it's so awful when someone actually does die that to be in the position to know in advance, um, Mm. it's called anticipatory grief, that's actually a positive. Uh, This sounds ridiculous, but... We have two dogs, and I hate to say it, our favorite. <laughs> uh, one died uh, unexpectedly in May, mm. and I am still grieving it so deeply because I was out of town when it mm. happened, yeah. and I didn't get to say, I'd always been able to say goodbye to mm. dogs before. And um, and it is, uh, I still have trouble looking at pictures of him because it still yeah. hurts yeah. so much. Yeah, and... My friend Chanel Reynolds has this beautiful way that she set this up that there's optional suffering around a death and there's non-optional suffering. And what you're in a position to do when you either know in advance that you're going to die or know in advance that someone you love or dog is going to die is that you can work on the optional suffering. You have the privilege of saying, okay, I'm going to figure out 
this paperwork. I'm going to figure out what needs to be done. I'm going to figure out exactly what they want for their funeral. And when they die, the non-optional suffering is going to kick in in a big way. And it's still going to suck. You're still going to grieve. It's still going to be the worst. But you've engaged and taken off the table some of that optional suffering. And man, what a what a positive on balance. Have you ever had someone play music during a cremation? I played for both my parents, but I have yet to hear of anyone else. That's awesome. Good, good for you. I would love to hear um, the only the only music I've ever heard played. Um, so people a do cremation. attend uh, a yes, cremation when do. it's not a pyre. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's called a witness cremation. Um, we we do a lot of them at my funeral home just because we push family involvement. Like we love it. If you want to show up for the cremation, please do come on down. Um, but yeah, the, the only ones that I personally have heard are, are Buddhist are either, um, a Buddhist track or, um, actual monks chanting. Um, the cremation machine can get pretty loud. So, you know, a subtle flute or something would have Mm. very little impact on it. But I think it would be gorgeous if someone just showed up and like played a cello or I always thought like something like like a Wagner or some like really intense, you know, booming music would be great. I want mine to be hot, hot, hot. Yeah. No, or or like or cremation appropriate music. Yeah. You know, like uh, I want people to laugh at. Yeah, I think my. Do you think it would be like the crowd comes in to witness the cremation? No, not at you. Um, But they come in and then, you know, the the door is slowly lowered and someone pushes the button to start the process. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, that that would be like a surprise to the guests. (laughs) Anything. That would be great. That sounds anything to to remind them of embrace the joy in life rather than. Sure. I would. Dwelling on the on the negative. You know, I would, of course want to imagine some people would cry and well, feel lost. Yeah, but. I think what would happen is that they would be sort of crying as it was happening, and the tension would be building as I it's happening. I want them to laugh through tears. And then, and then the song comes on, they laugh, then it reminds... It, it, they laugh for a little while, but then it reminds them of you and yes. the gifts that you've given in life and how this, how just like, you know, Paul, this mm-hmm. would be, and then they really start crying, and that's what allows them to release the all of the tension and grief. And it almost seems like you would also, for those that didn't have the last moments, this would be a last moment where they get to experience your spirit or whatever you want to call it. And that's the thing is that people always say, oh, I wasn't there for the death. That's okay. You can be there for any other number of things after the death, whether it's being with the body, whether it's attending the cremation, whether it's scattering the ashes, whether it's, you know, walking the, you know, the trail through Italy for that, that your father walked when he was 21, whatever it is that activates your grief and gets you involved. Those are all, all great ideas. The only thing you probably shouldn't do is just absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, you don't think packing it down deep into your belly and staring out the window, uh, is a good, a good way to do it. You know, that's not my personal, uh, (laughs) suggestion, but everybody has their methods. Uh, do you have to have black hair to become a mortician? Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, they don't tell you that, but you do. You also have to if have... If you're paying attention. You have to have bangs exactly like mine as well. When people ask me that, I'm like, 
That's because I'm the only mortician you know. That's like asking Ronald McDonald, like, do you, to run a multinational fast food corporation, do you have to have a red nose? Like, that's just because you know Ronald. Like, you know me, most morticians are older men still, much more young women entering the industry now. But uh, yeah, I'm, uh, you don't know. Um, Although you should try it. It's fun. What are the most bizarre requests you've gotten from clients? Hmm. Um, I think I've mentioned this once before, but there was someone who came in who there was some dis- paternity dispute. And somebody had told them that they needed to collect DNA before the cremation took place for obvious reasons. There's no DNA in mm-hmm. ashes. And... They were told that the way they had to do that was to cut off a piece of the ear and put a piece of the ear like in a tube and send it into a company. And they wanted me to cut off part of dad's ear. And I was like, I, I really don't think that's how that works. I think we could do like some hair or like a swab in the yeah. mouth. Like, I think you should call a company to, to do this. And they're like, no, no, you have to. This is how they told us to do it, to cut off part of the ear. I think they watched a Vietnam movie. I, yeah, I know. I was like, oh, it's like, and I, like you cut off your fingerprints or something. Yeah. Um, and I told them, which is what I always say with, with requests like this. For example, you know, I want mom's gold teeth back or something. I said, you know, whoever, I'd be happy to open our facility to whichever professional you would like to come in, dentist, your removal specialist for DNA, whatever it is. Um, but I personally am not taking on the liability of performing these things that I am not qualified to do. Yeah. Um, that's one of many stories, but that's just the one that came to share, mind. Share some stories that, uh, that, mm. that you think the, the listener, uh, <laughs> would or, enjoy. or I would ju- just enjoy that, would that enjoy. people, hmm. um, another one, another, like speaking of removing things, Another one that I really remember is somebody wanted her husband's glass eye back. And so I just walked in. And this one, I was like, well, we'll see if I can do this on my own. And I walked in and like an Edgar Allan Poe story, like his one glass eye is looking Mm -hmm. up at me from inside the cremation container. And I removed the glass eye and it came out pretty easily. I guess they don't, you know, they're not surgically implanted in there. I guess they just kind of pop them in. And I pulled it out and I washed it off and it was just beautifully made. It had the little veins that people have in their eyes. And it was just, it wasn't like a big hokey glass eye. It was just like an impeccably glass, beautiful eye. And I washed it off and I wrapped it up real nice. I think I may have even had a little like velvet bag for it or oh. something. And I mailed mailed it to his wife. And that's such that was such an interesting thing to me to want. And if it were me, I would totally want that. If it were my dad or my partner or something, yeah. I would be like, yes, send it on. Um but it was interesting that she wanted that as like a relic of yeah. her husband. What effect has corporatization of the death industry had on our relationship with death and our ability to grieve in a healthy way? We've touched on that a little bit, but I'm sure you can expand. Yeah, not good, my friend. Yeah, yeah I, I could I could do a whole... I, your, your podcast is not about uh, the corporate effect of the industry on things. Well, I guess it probably is in some scenarios, especially with mental health and uh, I suppose, drug companies and, yeah. and corporations. Um, but... 
Yeah, I, I don't I think it has not been positive because I think what it creates is a very distinct sales model that has to be followed with quotas to be met. Um, and that's not how funerals should be done with financial quotas for the salespeople or the funeral directors. That should seem self-evident, but it is not in how the industry is being run. It means that the way that the funeral industry is set up now has to be how it continues to be in the future. The so-called traditional funeral, which is the casket, the embalming, the wake, the whole thing, less and less people want that. It's just not as meaningful for a younger generation, even the baby boomers, it's not as meaningful for. It's not that great for the environment. It doesn't feel traditional to people mm -hmm. because it's not really. It's only been the last hundred years or so. And people don't want it as much anymore. But funeral homes have such a massive overhead that all of these smaller funeral homes are going out of business because if they can't sell that full funeral to people, if people are choosing cremations or choosing not to embalm, they go out of business. And the only ones that will stay in business are the corporate funeral homes because they can consolidate all their resources. They can take over all the funeral homes in a city. So it's the Walmarting of death. It's kind of the Walmarting of death. Yeah, it's shutting down the mom and pops and it's bringing all of the resources, say, to one big central embalming facility where you can have maybe five embalmers on staff and they're all just knocking out dead bodies all day that then just get sent out to all these different funeral homes mm. in a larger metropolitan area. Um, and that also leads to, uh, you know, increasing depersonalization of death and those corporate funeral homes being able to raise prices to whatever they'd like. Less competition. Less competition. So there's a, there's a mirror that's only scratching the surface of the problem, mm. but it's, it's not great. And, it's going to be even harder when there's an amazing woman that I work with named Tanya Marsh, who's a law professor at Wake Forest. And she has predictions about how rural areas are really going to be affected by this. Because if your entire model and the entire legal structure of the funeral industry is you have to do this kind of traditional funeral. That costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money. And if people aren't willing to spend that money, and they just don't, it's not even the money, they just don't feel like that's what they want for mm -hmm. their dead loved one. They're not choosing it. Those funeral homes are going to go out of business. Who's going to be serving that community? Do you have to, if you live in rural Ohio, do you have to drive three hours into Cleveland to have a basic funeral? You know, there's going to be a lot of, there's a lot of things that we're going to need to reckon with. Yeah. And one of the primary things is, is changing the laws so more people can enter the funeral industry and do it differently. Uh, what is the most environmentally responsible way? There's a lot of answers to that. Um, one answer would be to donate your body. So it's it's giving back somehow to society. Can you put it in the recycling bin? You can't put it in the recycling bin. At least, what? At least you don't want them to find out that you've done that. Um, there's a new... Even the green bin? Even the, even the compost bin? Yeah. Surely the compost yeah. bin. Um, there's a couple new things being proposed. One that's already in effect called alkaline hydrolysis or aquamation, which is basically using high heat water um, and lye to dissolve a body down to ashes. The same, basically the same ashes you would get after a cremation, but that's there's no um, emissions. Soot. There's no 
uh, natural gas being used, etc. Um, so that's really promising. There's a new way of um, composting a mm-hmm. dead body. It's called recomposition. That is putting you in nutrient, turning you into nutrient-rich soil. Um, yeah, they're green burial, which is you dig a hole in the ground. My favorite is something called conservation burial, which is you take land that's endangered and you plant some corpses in it and then they can't develop on that land. So you're saving land through your dead body. Wow, I love that. Isn't it a beautiful idea? Yeah, that's yeah. that's what Did I Did you come like. up with that? Oh, no, no. Uh, I wish I came up with that. Yeah. Uh, that. That would make me an excellent person. But it's an offshoot of the idea of a natural burial. So a natural burial ground, a lot of cemeteries are opening up more natural burial grounds because people just don't want the big vault and the big casket and the big to-do. Mm-hmm. They want just a shrouded body to go into the earth and dust to dust. And a conservation burial is sort of a an offshoot of that and even more um, taking endangered land and land stewardship as well, reintroducing natural plants and animals to the land um, and just having, you know, if you want to plant a memorial bush or tree, it has to be you know, indigenous to mm-hmm. the land that you are burying it in. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I hope that more and more people th- choose it, get into it, open them. What is the strangest response you've had emotionally viewing a dead body that, that, that has taken you by surprise? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, Hmm. I think I think what always impresses me, I guess is the right word, is how when you see a really decomposing body, how quickly you can go from absolute revulsion because it smells and it's mm-hmm. decay and it's not supposed to be like, ooh, decomposition. I love right. it. You're supposed to be conditioned to be re- revolted by it. And you go from that to just look at these colors. Look at this mold growing. It's just beautiful. It's so beautiful how nature is taking care mm-hmm. of this body. And then you have to wash some mold off the scrotum and you're back to being revolted. <laughs> and then you see this beautiful aquamarine color in his abdomen and you're like, oh, what a beautiful color. I wish I could patent this color and put it on a dress. You know, it's just, it's it's not so much wow. one individual body. It's like the journey that a, you can go on. A roller coaster. A roller coaster of, with a of, single decomposing body. It's like you have a tiny universe in front of you every it day. It is. It's gorgeous. It's a tiny ecosystem that is a dead body and it's... It's just, it's revolting and gorgeous. And isn't, isn't, yeah, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Wow. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to share before we, uh, before we go? No, this is great. I, I, for some reason I thought I was going to have to answer like very deep personal questions, but you just asked me great questions that I don't usually get more in depth about. You know, it was honestly, it was honestly refreshing to not, um, talk about somebody's childhood for for <laughs> 55 minutes and hear about how shitty their parents were not that i mind hearing those it's just this was kind of a a, uh, a palate cleanser yeah. to from, be fair from we that. did talk more about my childhood than i think i've ever talked about yeah. in an interview before even given that but yeah. um 
Yeah, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And your book is called From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you. Love talking to her. What uh, what a sense of humor and what a visionary too, man. Um, before I read some surveys, um, I want to give some love to our sponsors. And if you would, please support our sponsors because if you guys don't, then they don't advertise here and then I can't do the show. So it's really, really important uh, to me. But enough about that. Let's talk about something really important. Let's talk about mattresses. I want to tell you guys about Casper mattresses. Uh, you know I love to sleep. I know you love to sleep. So listen up. A Casper mattress is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. And as we know, for me and a lot of you guys, it's closer to half your life. Uh, they have free shipping and returns to the United States and Canada, and with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. So, you guys get 50 bucks, as my listeners, that sounds a little possessive, you get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash mental and using the offer code mental. Uh, once again, $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash mental and using offer code mental. Terms and conditions apply. Time to give some love to our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward, but you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So, Right now, you guys can post jobs for free. That's right, free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. And I'm going to do it a third time because I'm superstitious. ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. All right. This is an awful moment filled out by emotional vomit and... She writes, my first relationship was at 13. I was a freshman in high school and the senior guy asked me out. I was so excited. One month in, he got me drunk and raped me. After he did that, he told me that no one else would ever love me. I believed him. He continued to emotionally and physically abuse. I was in a, quote, relationship with him on and off for eight years. During that time, he cheated on me more times than I can count. He was also engaged to someone else while we were together and had a baby with another girl. 
After, by the way, he sounds like a terrific guy. After I graduated high school, he asked me to move in with him. The night I moved in with him, we had a huge party. I was very drunk and stumbled up to our bedroom. When I opened the door, I saw him having sex with a different girl. He asked if I wanted to join. I crawled onto the bed and vomited all over him. Then I rolled over and fell asleep. However, now I am in a uh, relationship with a wonderful partner whereas he has been divorced twice. I am so glad I vomited on him. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, for those of you that are new to the podcast, uh, the word awfulsome is a, a word we came up with to describe something that uh, in the past was really awful at the time, but looking back on it, there was something kind of uh, funny in a fucked up way or even beautiful. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by, let's see, where's the name? Please don't forget me. And it's not a full survey. Um, he only filled out about half of it. He is straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional uh, environment, never been sexually abused, Never been physic physically abused, not sure if he's been uh, emotionally abused. Uh, he writes, hard to say really, some possible neglect from my mom, who I've always thought gave my younger sister more attention than me at my expense, but hard to know if that's really abuse. If it is my warped perspective, if it's my war warped perspective or what, still figuring that out. Uh, any positive experiences? Yeah, despite our challenges, my mom and I, especially since I moved to another city about a year and a half ago, are close. For better or worse, we have a lot in common and are learning how to relate to each other as adults. It's a process, of course, and one we are both trying to figure out. Uh, darkest thoughts. Not really sure how to answer this in a way that you would find particularly interesting. I've been hurt by a lot of people, so I guess exacting revenge on them. Uh, darkest secrets. I'm a pathological liar, and I have been since my teens at least. Both of big and small things, particularly with those closest to me, around things like sex, and then parentheses, I am really still a virgin, much longer story there, body image, self-confidence and worth issues, and more. Pretty pathetic, huh? Question mark. But also around other life experiences. I guess it's an attempt to make my story memorable so as not to be forgotten and a way to connect with people regardless of how fucked up that is. And the worst part is many of the people I have told these lies to are people I have loved and truly love, and I am at a loss for what to do. Thank you for being so, uh, so honest, um, there. And, uh, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, being a pathological liar or lying pathologically, it, it just happens to be the tool that you reach for to uh, express um, painful emotions that you have inside. And the painful emotions that you are feeling inside, um, you are not alone with those um, f feeling invisible, uh, feeling like you're not enough. Um, that's something that so many of us struggle with. And I think if you could find um, people who can understand that, uh, maybe people with a similar struggle or just um, a support group for people um, that were raised in families that didn't learn how to express their feelings, um, I think you would 
uh, I think you would probably find that this has just been a way for you to cope and it's not who you are. And, um, you know, I, I could sit here and tell you, you're enough, you're lovable, but we have to be the ones to, to decide it. Uh, and the jury is still out whether or not I'm lovable. Um, I keep checking the mail every day. And uh, <laughs> this is an awful moment filled out by Rose Colored Contacts. And she writes, I was raised Catholic and consequently... Consequently, I struggle with a lot of issues surrounding guilt and shame. I'm actively working on these issues, and my husband is very supportive of my progress. Anyway, one day my husband and I had a minor disagreement. We agreed to give each other space as we cooled down, so he left the house to run some errands. When he came home, he had brought me my favorite food, macaroni and cheese. He brought the container to me, and he said, This proves that I'm a nice guy, even if you don't think so. I couldn't believe he would try to make me feel guilty about our earlier fight. I immediately took the container and threw it in the trash, and I told him, I will not accept gifts that are meant to make me feel guilty. I was so proud of myself, and my husband was proud of me too, though it took him a while to admit it. I just wish I had come up with a way to feel empowered that didn't involve throwing away my favorite food. That is fantastic. And what's more fantastic is that you you advocated for yourself and your husband came around. I mean, that to me is like just nuts and bolts working in a committed relationship. It's just made up of moments of, of that. I had a therapist tell me one time, it's the way that we come back together after we disagree or fight or hurt each other that matters. And that is what strengthens uh, the, the relationship. And what a beautiful example of that. However, I hate both of you. This is, um, why do I always feel the need that I have to let people know that I'm joking? I'm so afraid of getting an email by somebody that doesn't know I'm kidding. And it's like 0.001% of the people that are listening. It's that perfectionism, I guess. And I'm an idiot. This is a happy moment filled out by Grace. And she writes, I was finishing up my master's degree and had a job waiting for me, but funding made it a less than concrete prospect. I'd submitted a couple of dozen other applications, but those few months were stressful. Do I keep my apartment? Prepare for a cross-country move? There, Where the hell was I headed that fall? I was on spring break visiting my parents. One morning I was eating breakfast and the TV was on, but I wasn't paying attention to what was on. My mind was still racing, but I had a moment of peace. Somewhere in there, there was a scene on TV where a middle-aged man said to his school-aged girl, Grace, everything is going to work out. Not sure why, but I kind of took that as a sign that maybe things were going to be all right. In my heart of hearts, I came to realize this. Sure enough, they secured the funding for my position. I love those moments when, when we feel like the universe is speaking to us, even if it's a coincidence. Just in that moment, it's so nice. I went to my Wednesday night support group meeting, and I was kind of feeling sideways. And before the meeting started, I just said, please, just to myself, universe, please tell me what I need to hear through these people. And sure enough, I heard everything that I needed to hear, including... A beautiful conversation with a, a fellow member of the of the group afterwards. Um, I had shared that I had been in kind of a, a 
briefly had some suicidal ideation and it, <laughs> how do I, how do I state this casually? I had a couple of thoughts of throwing myself off my balcony. And, uh, and she looked at me and she said, we would really miss you. And the sincerity in her eyes, uh, brought tears to my eyes. And even though I intellectually knew that people would miss me, I felt the emotion. I felt the love. You know, I think there's a difference between knowing you're loved and feeling you're loved. And in that moment, that eye contact, I felt I was loved and my eyes welled up and her eyes welled up. And um, that to me is like what recovery is, is just moments like that of talking about the ugly and um, instead of just trying to pound it down <laughs> with ice cream and uh, yelling at my uh, teammates on my hockey team. This is a shame and secret survey, and I'm feeling much better, by the way. I don't want anybody to be alarmed, and, you know, um, that's not why I, I brought that up. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a, a trans female who calls herself... Let's see. She called herself... What's her name? Oh, Blue Green Sea. Uh, she is... In her 30s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, never been sexually abused, um, but some other stuff happened. And she writes, I've never been touched, but have been shamed and publicly humiliated when I was going through puberty for my interest in sex. It's kind of hard to explain, but my mom and her side of the family generally hated men, and she used every chance to project her views of men onto me, including, but not limited to, being disgusting in regards to sex. The ironic thing was that I never related to men, but that also scared her, so she forced this idea onto me and then shamed me for it in front of friends and family. Her, uh, my uncle, her brother, sexually abused her and her sister when they were little, something I didn't learn until recently, so I'm starting to understand why she might have done that. Still, she'll never know how she's ruined sex for me. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. Um, my mom has BPD. Everything was a bother to her when I was actually a very sweet, shy, loving little boy. I wasn't allowed to have friends over, and she would go on a tirade if I asked her to do anything for me, let alone drive me to a friend's house, so I just didn't have friends until I was in middle school, but only really at school. When I had questions about wanting to wear girls' clothes or growing my hair out, she would go on a typical ranting campaign against, quote, people like that and how they were disgusting, which made me homophobic and self-hating. My dad was largely absent growing up, but I remember asking him if it was okay to love my friend Chris when I was in fifth grade, and as a defense mechanism against how his father used to shame him for not being manly enough, told me I could love anyone I want, it's just a little different with girls. Wow. He's a sweet man, but is definitely homophobic and doesn't have boundaries. When I came out two years ago, he went to great lengths to argue why I wasn't trans or into men. It was just a result of how my mom abused me. He projects his life on my sister and I as if we are all one person all the time. He's mad at me for recently attempting suicide because he thinks I'm trying to manipulate him into accepting my being trans. 
He argues that he doesn't get a fair amount of input into making the decision. The decision of what? To, it's not his fucking decision. That it, oh my god, what a narcissist! Uh, it's rather enraging. Uh, with physical abuse, my mom would attack my dad as soon as he got home from work about one of her imagined issues with me, and he would lose his temper and go too far, like being punched in the chest, knocking me to the floor, and cracking my sternum. He recently denied ever laying a hand on either my sister and I. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Since my parents' Uh, divorce, both parents have tried to make amends, mostly bl- by blaming the other for everything. <laughs> Boy, that is a shitty amends and trying to be generous, though there are always strings attached. This is made for a few nice trips with my dad where he has tried to make up for not being around as a kid, and my mom sends me money if I'm stuck with bills, but I can't help but feel bribed. And then I need to express my deepest gratitude, which isn't how I really feel. I am thankful they try. I'm just bitter about getting this far into my life before coming out of my shell, mainly because my parents never came out of theirs. They both think I've lost my mind since coming out. It's hard to accept love from someone who refuses to see who you really are. I'm so sorry that you are not able to be seen by both of your parents, and that so complicates it too, you know, when there's financial support involved and... uh, you know, just the thought, um, what if the next time they gave you uh, money, uh, if you said, you know, the greatest gift I could ever get from you would be you accepting me for who I am, um, because that would mean more than, than money. Uh, but it's, you know, it's interesting when people make amends and then they try to attach strings you know, I've caught myself doing that before, making amends to somebody and then realizing about halfway through it, I'm trying to control what this person thinks of me as well. And that's not a true amends. A true amends is just solely saying, I am sorry. I can't imagine how that how that felt um, when I did such and such or said such and such. And is there any way that I can make it better? Please forgive me. Uh, What are your darkest thoughts? I have OCD and get persistent, unwanted thoughts of dying. In cinematic detail, I see my death in 20 different ways each day, cycling through, figuring out how not to die, but there's never anything I can do. This brings up some pretty creepy, desperate ideas of how to hurt someone else first, like gouging eyes or biting, which always... uh, I think there's a misspelling, which always yells on the extreme qualities of a horror movie. Um, yeah, autospell, for some reason, has capital Y-A-L-E. Um, uh, maybe scales? That's Anyway, some of my friends don't understand why I hate horror movies, but it's because it gives my fucked up brain material for these constant images. I just started taking Luvox, which has helped, but it still happens regularly darkest secrets, that I felt like a woman and was into men, women, trans, etc., but that's no longer a secret, but it was such a secret I told my best friend and cousin four times and never remember having told him previously, which was a creepy feeling. I'm not sure if I ever told anyone else. Um, 
Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to make love and be penetrated by someone who wants it as much as I do, laying side by side, their hands caressing my body, their lips on my neck. That's since I've been on hormones. It used to be that I wanted to be gang raped and sometimes beaten to death in the process. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my parents how they damaged me, but it's pointless. I wouldn't be heard and it would upset me further. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for a loving partner to share my life with. Uh, have you shared these things with others? I have, but since coming out of the closet and my shell, everything I say to my friends and family is taken like I'm lost in some psychotic breakdown or like I'm a child with simplistic ideas. I hate myself for building this prison I've lived my whole life in to make other people comfortable. My therapists have always been supportive, though. I'm, yeah, I am so sorry that, um, and she writes uh, that uh, writing this down was cathartic. Uh, I feel like I could go on and on uh, about the abuse. Um, you sound like you are on the path to healing, though, and... Uh, you know, it just sounds like there's a big obstacle of of um, the insanity of wishing for something from somebody that can't give it to you, that is incapable. I mean, who knows? Maybe your parents will come around someday, but um, it sounds like you're beginning to accept yourself more, and that's that's awesome. And thank you for for a really um, though though painful uh, a beautiful beautiful survey. You sound like a really nice person. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, Healthy in Debt. And she writes, I was supposed to attend an out-of-state college friend's wedding over the weekend. I flew there, helped with last-minute arrangements, and planned a last-minute bachelorette party that happened two days before the wedding. The bride-to-be got blackout drunk and started raging on myself and the rest of the bridal party in a busy club uh, when we unsuccessfully tried to stop her from cheating on her soon-to-be husband. I convinced a police officer to not arrest her, coaxed her into getting in an Uber, and we waited at one of the bridesmaid's houses for the bride's brother to pick us up. Meanwhile, the bride throws up in the Uber, runs away when he get, we get to the bridesmaid's house, and breaks an extremely sentimental bracelet of mine, all while verbally and physically assaulting us. The next day, she laughed off the incident by saying, it's not a bachelorette party without a fight, and refused to apologize to me. I maxed out my credit card to buy the last seat on a plane leaving that day. She was baffled that I decided to leave. While waiting the seven hours until boarding, I contemplated her reaction. In college, there were dozens of times we both got angry and drunk. Every time, we forgave each other unconditionally because we were both stuck in the same cycle of refusing to cope well with the stresses of college as well as with being sexually assaulted. What changed in the years since graduation is that I got a therapist, medication, and stopped drinking, while she's developed an even worse drinking problem in lieu of seeking help. It's going to take me months to pay this trip off, but I'm glad I was able to see how much I've grown. That is like Hall of Fame fucking high five. That is the shit that is hard to do and is the most rewarding I mean, that, that's some ninja fucking level self-care. And uh, yeah, that just, I love reading stuff like that. Not about your friend struggling, but about you. Yeah, about your friend struggling. 
about you taking care of yourself. Uh, this is an awful moment fel- filled out by sleaze bags. Beware. And uh, she writes, at 15, I was seduced and subsequently raped by a guy who followed the dating philosoph- philosophy of negging using put-downs and half-truths to make a weaker woman submissive to these sick, twisted men. Years later, at age 19, I was figure-skating with a friend when a stranger approached us and began trying similar tactics. Knowing what he was trying to do, I turned the tables on him and grilled him on, on why he couldn't find someone to love him. He immediately got upset, but knew that he had lost. He turned away and, skating into the opposite direction, but not before running into a massive hockey player and spinning out of control and smashing into a wall. Uh, I had a panic attack in the car on the way home, but at least I put a piece of scum back in his place. Uh, This is... And thank you for sharing that, by the way. Um, This is a happy moment filled out by suddenly only submits happy moments question mark question mark uh, i'm currently in a parking garage in downtown uh, playing hooky from work because i am so happy because i got into grad school it's been three years of prerequisites and interviews and asking for recommendations but i'm in it's surreal but it feels like the culmination of a long hard path This is also the second happy moment I've submitted recently, and now I know my meds are on point. I am ready to go. That's so great. You know, one of the aha moments when meds finally work is that um, you didn't realize how shitty you were feeling until you feel better. Uh, You know, it's almost like if you had... From the moment you were born, you had had a migraine headache, and then at age 22, the migraine headache went away. Um, it was, I didn't know how anxious I was until I got on meds and my anxiety eased. I always thought I was so laid back. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Alexis, and I'm fine today. And uh, she writes, after a couple of months of therapy, I think I'm finally starting to feel like myself again. Since late high school, I felt like I've been losing myself to depression. And for the better part of a year, I believed it had swallowed me whole. My depression had become a house without windows or doors. And I was stuck there, forced to experience my life, muffled and distorted through the brick walls, trapping me inside my own head with that mean voice. But with the help of therapy and good friends, I can feel it falling away. Day by day, brick by brick, I'm beginning to see the sun again. I'm smiling more. I'm singing again. I find myself laughing more frequently and more genuinely than I have in months. I feel so light. Yesterday was a not-so-great day, and I felt determined to not let it completely suck. I chose to force myself to do something fun and try to be happy if only for a moment. So I made a picnic for myself, grabbed a blanket, my bike, and headed for the park. As I was riding through the trails, I came across an adorable little girl screaming with laughter as she was running and jumping on the pavement. Each time her little feet hit the ground, there was a loud squeak exactly like you'd hear from a a dog's chew toy. I heard the mother explaining to another woman that she bought these toddler shoes that have little squeaking devices in them so she always knows where her daughter is. 
While she was explaining this, her daughter was stomping in circles around them, giggling in delight at each squeaky step. That little girl's total joy in her silly, squeaky shoes brought a smile to my face, and I was amazed at how simple and pure a child's happiness can be. That's so beautiful. Um, <laughs> she writes, oh yeah, by the way, another happy moment happened a while back. I was going through my usual morning routine while listening to your show, and just as I was settling into my post-coffee shit, I heard you start to read one of my surveys. I've been a little stopped up for a couple of days from some medicine. I was taking uh, from some medicine I was taking, but that coffee was really about to get things moving. And I swear to God, Paul, the euphoria I experienced with the combined joy of having my survey read and the relief of my digestive tract finally giving me a break was unreal. That poop and this podcast will be with me forever. Thanks, dude. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, and then any comments to make the podcast better? I don't think you're hard enough on yourself, Paul. Seriously. Maybe you should try to have some humility. Thank you for that. Um, this is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Almost Free. She is straight, in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, my mother, a middle school teacher, molested me until I was about seven or eight. I remember kicking her in the chest and saying, bitch, if you ever touch me like that again, I'll kill you. I didn't discover until I had my own daughter that there was much more damage that was done. For example, I taught my daughter to wash herself at two years old because I would tremble and shake at the thought of giving my own daughter a bath. Just the tip of the iceberg. There were always, quote, issues with my privates where she would, quote, have to apply various creams herself. My daughter was able to do this on her own at three, and there were not many times that I had to do this, maybe five since she was born. I'd use a Q-tip and tremble. I realized that I still have plenty of work to do. Having a daughter and going through various stages makes me aware of how sick my mom was. I'm glad I went to therapy up until I gave birth and some therapy after to learn how to not pass these issues onto my daughter. But to this day, I still get pissed. She died right before I started back at college after a long time. This is the same person who told her own daughter, knowing I had a high IQ, that I wasn't smart enough for college and should just get a good job. Who does that? She was a teacher who helped former students of hers go to college. Ugh. By the way, what you just described is such a common way that uh, uh Predatory mothers abuse uh, their daughters. I, I know, you know, probably a dozen women who've experienced that exact thing—the cream excuse. And um, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And um, as I've mentioned on earlier podcasts, I am um, trying to collect information uh, for a potential book about mothers that sexually abuse their kids. And so if you hear this, or any of you who uh, can relate to what she wrote, um, please email me uh, through the website. Uh, let's see. 
She's been, obviously, physically and emotionally abused as well. After standing up to my mother, which meant me staying up all night that night with a knife in my bed, it was verbal put-downs and knock-down fights until I left the house and even after. Oh, and by the way, um, not all of the, uh, the I said, that kind of textbook in how a lot of the uh, mothers uh, sexually abused their daughters um, not all of them uh, were violent and involved punching and kicking or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, now I feel like I, that was totally unnecessary for me to uh, inject in there, but I have to be perfect in everything I do. And then when I fail, I need to go in the corner and stare and think about what a terrible person I am. When I was younger, I did in fact fight back, but after a few years, I said, what do I have to lose and would fight her back as hard as I could. I literally worked out and weight trained so I could kick her ass. She'd punch me in my face for putting too much soap in the sink to wash dishes. She'd pull my hair so hard in front of my friends that I couldn't even brush it. Why? Who knows? To this day, my temper is unmanaged. I've learned to let a lot of things go and process them, but I cannot deal with anyone that's manipulative or negative. I immediately go into survival mode, and I can very nicely cut them deeply with my words. Now I try to leave the situation if I feel myself getting that way. I left my last job because my boss reminded me so much of my mother that I couldn't deal with it. I went to the ER with chest pains while working for that lady. My first experience of a full-blown anxiety attack. I wonder if EMDR would uh, would help because, my, my God, how would your... How, nobody's brain would, uh, you know, not go into fight-or-flight mode um, given what you went through. Holy shit. Uh, any positive experiences with her? She was a single mother. My dad left when I was about five or six, but he managed to see me every week. I have a few stepmothers that were more motherly to me than my own mother. I don't really know any good things because to me, they were always around other people. They were fake to me. If she tried to give me a hug, I'd ask if she was dying. <laughs> when she did die, she laid on my shoulder. The most creepiest moment in my life. I wanted to shrug her off. I'm glad she's dead. And thank you for not apologizing for your feelings. Um, I see so many people that that berate themselves for how they feel about somebody. And we have no control over what thoughts pop into our head and what feelings come from inside us. But we have control hopefully, over how we express them. And um, anyway, darkest thoughts. I wish my mother died earlier. I wish she died when I was under 18 so I might have had a shot at a normal life. Maybe stay with my dad and my stepmom at the time. Wouldn't have mattered where I stayed, just not with her. I did as much as I could around other families that my mom left me with so they could like me, hoping someone would take me. But she literally had everyone fooled. Some of her student... Students' parents would let their daughter stay over for the weekend. Bad idea. I always slept on the couch when they were over, but I had my own room with bunk beds. I can't bring myself to really go there yet, but it's sick and creepy. Did I mention I was happy she's gone? It's only been three years since she died, but I must say these are the best years of my life. Yeah, it sounds like your mother was really, really predatory. Um... 
I, I don't know how in this, this day and age when an adult invites children over to their house, uh, it, it doesn't raise red flags. And I don't mean, you know, saying, hey, come over and spend time with my child who's your age. But um, I was watching something on TV the other day and somebody, uh, it was, I don't know, it was a scoutmaster or something. And and uh, he would have groups of these, uh, oh no, he was an agent. He was a Hollywood agent and he would have um, these kids that he managed come spend the weekend at his place. It's like, my God, that's such a red flag. Anyway, darkest thoughts. Uh, we did that. Darkest secrets. I would put soap in her food. I'd just watch her get sick. Then when she needed help, I'd act like she didn't exist. A little payback for her waking me up in the middle of the night when she got home about 1 a.m. on a school night. Ooh, that's creepy too. With punches in my chest, uh, to go wash a bowl and spoon out of the sink, then punching me because I used too much soap. Wow. What a sick, sick woman. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't have any big fantasies. It's kind of sad, but my fantasy is a loving man that's kind to me and my daughter. That's literally it. That's not sad. That's beautiful. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would love... To have asked my dad if he wanted me to stay over at his house the night that he died. I would have been there to call 911 earlier. He died of a heart attack. Maybe it could have been prevented. I spent the evening with him. I spent the evening with him and left early to go home. Um, what if anything to wish for? I wish for me to be sober and mentally healthy. I have not had much experience with these things in my life. I want to be the best mom I can be and to finally attract a healthy relationship. I strongly, strongly, strongly urge you to deal with getting sober first because anything else until that is in place is essentially impossible. Um, thank you for sharing all this stuff. Um, and um, yeah, you're not you're not alone in those things that you experienced. Um, sadly, <laughs> this is a happy moment filled out by Dancing with the Aurora Borealis, and she writes, "Finding this podcast when I was in the middle of a depressive episode. How was I able to hear and relate to? How I was able to hear and relate to others about the demons in my head." Uh, Another one, finally being able to find a local community program that specialized in mental illnesses. I went for an hour session with two amazing therapists that helped me realize how strong I am. They made me see, see myself through non-judgmental eyes and to be able to see that I am actually handling my situation well enough. Number three, looking forward to starting group session next week. Exclamation point. Huge sigh of relief. Beautiful. I so love when you guys share that you have overcome the fear or the cynicism about getting help and and you're beginning to feel better or at the very least feel, you know, are able to see a pin light of hope. At uh, This one is filled out by a woman who calls herself Sorry About It, Paul. And she writes, 
I got hooked on this podcast, hoping it had helped me cope with many of my behaviors, one of the worst ones being that I gained misdirected romantic-slash-sexual feelings towards almost anyone who makes me feel comforted, important, or heard in any way. And now I have a huge crush on Paul Gilmartin because of the way he speaks about mental illness and the ways I can relate. And I low-key want to bang him. Sorry, Paul. Hope you feel flattered. I am very uh, flattered, but I'm currently actually um, uh, on a low-key dating app. <laughs> It'd be funny if they had a low-key, a low-key Tinder. Um, no, I'm very, I'm very flattered, and uh, I very much relate to that to that feeling. Uh, when I first got into recovery, any woman who would show me. Um, who I would feel non-judgment, acceptance, warmth from. Um, I like a million different f- euphoric feelings would come out, and it was just a mixed bowl of uh, romantic, sexual, um, maternal, uh, and it was so uh, ungraceful. Uh, and a lot of times I cringe at how I handled it, but you know, it's my story. It's how I handled it. So don't beat yourself up for, uh, for that. I think it's pretty normal. Uh, and then finally, this is a happy moment from Rachel. And she writes, today, my husband joined me for a meeting with one of my therapists at my outpatient day program for postpartum mood disorders. We discussed how he can help me with the intrusive suicidal thoughts that have been plaguing me since our daughter was born a year and a half ago. He really opened up in the meeting and was so accepting of the conversation around my depression and the disruptive thoughts that get in the way of parenting and life in general. He was incredibly nervous before the meeting and spoke about how he didn't think he could talk to a stranger about our home life. Anyway, I am so proud of us for doing this work with each other. I am so relieved that the meeting was productive. I feel grateful for the love and support of my dear husband who has watched me suffer for so long. I feel his love, and for the first time in the last few years, I am glad I am alive. You guys are just amazing. Just amazing. I know I say it all the time. Uh, but you are. You're, you're, um, your willingness to share these things with me, to take the time out, to go fill out a survey, and, and um, it, just, it just means a lot to me. And it reminds me that I'm, though my external circumstances may feel different, uh, the internal emotions are so universal between all of us. And uh, I love being reminded that I'm not alone. And never forget that you're not alone. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.